Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, we are thankful that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word and that one of the evidences of Your existence, of the veracity of Your Word, that it is a unique book of all books, is the fact that You are the God who declares the end from the beginning. You are the God who accurately and in detail gives information about future events that will come true to the most precise detail. And as we study prophecy, we study revelation, we are reminded that you are in control of history and that despite the vagaries of our day-to-day existence, despite the changes, the threats of insecurity and chaos that continually hover on the edges of our experience, we know that there is stability in you, and, there, and therefore we can have confidence in you and trust in you, and that no matter what happens, we know that uh, you are in control and we can relax and trust you. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation this morning, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged spiritually, that our focus would be upon you, and that we would be reminded that all of history ultimately brings our focal point Back to you. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now, on March the 30th of this year, we begin to examine this central part of the book of Revelation. And you, let me get out of this. You remember that we looked at the book of Revelation in terms of its outline just to get that overview. And every now and then we need to stop, reflect upon what we have studied so that we can sort of uh, summarize it and be reminded of what we have studied, what we've learned, and get past some of the details to focus on the major principles that the Lord wants us to remember and to learn from this book. We saw that there are three divisions to this book. The first chapter, which focuses on the things that John saw initially on the island of Patmos. 
chapters 2 and 3, which focused on the trends of the church age related to the seven letters to seven churches. And then the third portion is the prophetic portion, the things that shall take place after these things, focusing on the tribulation as the major chunk of information in the book of Revelation from chapters 4 through 19, chapter 20 devoted to the millennium, and then the last two chapters focusing on the eternal state. Our focus right now is on the uh, this major section related to the tribulation from chapters 4 through chapters 19. Last Sunday, we finished chapter 9. There is a break in the action between 9 and 10. 10 introduces a new section within this tribulation period where we are introduced to the angel, uh, this mighty angel who has a little book, and that little book contains additional revelation related to what has been going on within uh, the tribulation period, and it fits in a chronological framework there, as we'll see when we get there next time. But for now, we're going to stop at this breaking point just to go back and review and encapsulate what we have looked at in these previous chapters. The tribulation itself can be charted out like this, where there is a um, where there's the rapture uh, at the beginning, and then in the first half of the tribulation we see Israel protected. In the second half of the tribulation, Israel is persecuted. Israel is a major focal point in the tribulation period. Now, in terms of the organization, we see that the tribulation itself is a period of seven years, three and a half years in the first half, three and a half years in the second half. What divides the two is an event known as the abomination of desolation, which comes after the second series of judgments. Uh, There are two series of judgments that take place in the first half, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. That's the focus, that has been the focus of our study since the end of March last year. We will begin the next section, which as you can see from this diagram, breaks actually at 10.1 and goes through the end of chapter 14. 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 deal with different people, nations, trends that are going on uh, within the tribulation period, bringing those events up to date to the midpoint of the tribulation itself. We saw that the first half of the tribulation had seven seal judgments. The sixth of these is the most serious of of these judgments, and is one wherein it becomes clear that those who are upon the earth who are uh, undergoing the judgments realize that these are not natural catastrophes, but that it is the wrath or the judgment of God upon mankind, and yet they continue to resist him, and they continue to be hostile to him. The seventh seal will be opened, and that will contain seven trumpet judgments. Another thing that we saw in our study at this point was parallels between uh, the events of Revelation chapter 6, where it talks about false messiahs and false prophets and wars and international instability, famine, pestilences, death, martyrdom, 
uh, earthquake, various cosmic phenomena, and how that parallels what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and, excuse me, computer got ahead of me there. Let's back the chart up a minute. See, I just hit too many buttons. I get carried away. Okay. We have Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. These are passages that describe events that are yet future when Jesus was answering questions from his disciples related to the end times. By comparing these passages, we see that uh, the events in the first set of judgments, those sealed judgments, are clearly set before the abomination of desolation, and they are in the first half of the tribulation. This confirms that at least those judgments must be completed before the midpoint. Other evidence, which we'll get into in the coming chapters, indicate that the trumpet judgments must also precede the midpoint of the tribulation. But it shows, and the purpose of this chart is to show how everything that we have prophetically from the Old Testament, we went through uh, passages in Daniel, spent some time on Daniel, 70 weeks. We spent time in these chapters showing how Revelation is actually the culmination of these prophecies and that there's no discrepancy or contradiction and that God began to reveal these future end-time events to the Jews in the Old Testament because it relates ultimately to the cleansing and the forgiveness of the nation for their sins of idolatry, their rejection of God in the Old Testament, rejection of the Messiah in the New Testament, and how God will ultimately cleanse the land, bring the people to a point of national regeneration, and establish the kingdom on the earth where Messiah will reign as God promised in the Old Testament. Now, as we look at these chapters and at all of these different events, it's easy for us to to become uh, distracted by some of the details and some of the mechanics of the judgments, just how some of these are going to work themselves out. We're not sure, but when we see them, we will go, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. Too bad I didn't think of that before. Uh, God is going to is very clear, but sometimes in the revelation of prophetic events, just enough is given to give us that orientation, but he doesn't go into all of the details or all of the mechanics. Now, as we have gone through these chapters, we've seen also that the scene shifts. It's important to understand that when you're reading, the scene will shift from heaven chapters 4 and 5, to the earth, chapter 6, the uh, explanation of the six seal judgments. Chapter 7 then takes us back to heaven, focuses on things that are going on at a, at a contemporaneous with the events in chapter 6. And then we come to chapter 8, which explains and develops the next series of judgments, the uh, trumpet judgments. And in chapters 8 and 9, we have the uh, description of these trumpet judgments. Uh, And that takes our focus in 8 and 9 back 
back to the earth. So we have to understand that. You might note in your Bible where each scene is so that later when you're reading in Revelation, uh, it, it comes back to you and you can read it with, uh, with understanding. But as we go through these chapters, there are four distinct points of application, teaching principles that need to be reinforced. Uh, one that I would just say that precedes the four I'm talking about is that we must remember that whenever we are looking at prophecy, that on contrast to the way many people think of prophetic studies, it's not about satisfying our curiosity about the future. We're not reading you know, some astrological column in the newspaper to find out what's going to happen next week or the next week or if uh, someone on the current political scene is the Antichrist or the false prophet or any of these things. The focal point in prophecy is always God. It is The focal point of all of Scripture is always God. In the Old Testament, when we have history, uh, history relates to stories, and any good story has a conflict. Any good conflict is resolved by a hero. The basic conflict in human history is sin, and the hero who resolves the sin problem is God. And so God is the ultimate hero, the ultimate focal point of every uh, story in the Old Testament. Well, prophecy is nothing more than history written ahead of time. And so when we study prophecy, the focal point is still God. He is the one to whom all of this ultimately drives us, understanding that he is vindicating his character in human history. And so as we look at Revelation, we need to be reminded of the fact that despite all these little details of, of judgments, that it's all about God, and it is always all about God. And as a believer in the church age, as we read about these future events, one of the applications is that it should further our theocentric focus, our God-centered focus on who God is and what he has done in history. So four points of application that we should remember as we, we come to the midpoint of the tribulation, focus our attention on God and his work in history. The first point is this, that God, grace precedes judgment, that the events in the tribulation are the judgment that God brings against sinful, rebellious humanity at the end of history. And all of human history leading to that is a period that emphasizes the grace of God. Even though sometimes we refer to the church age as the age of grace because there's a greater manifestation of it, nevertheless, God has always dealt with fallen mankind on the basis of grace. Grace is undeserved merit. It is unearned kindness. It is God doing everything he can based on his character to benefit Creatures who have done everything to not deserve that which he is giving them. And so he bestows this upon us in, throughout the, uh, the ages of history. And he speaks of this in numerous passages in, throughout the scripture and in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 103 verse 8, as well as Psalm 145 verse 8, 
state this, the same principle. Psalm 103, 8 states, The Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy is the application of his grace to individual circumstances and situations. Grace is his unmerited favor. He is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. God is not in a hurry to bring judgment. This is one of the major themes we see in prophecy is that God eventually will bring justice to all of those circumstances and situations where there has been injustice. And with God, justice delayed is not uh, justice diminished, but eventually he will bring all to that point of judgment and justice and whatever injustice is uh, we may experience in life, ultimately God will bring about a complete judgment. But before then, he is going to deal with mankind in grace and in kindness, extending to them the opportunity uh, to be saved. Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. We must remember that all human beings, every single one of us, deserves death. We deserve an eternity in the lake of fire. Grace means that we don't get what we deserve. We don't deserve God to be gracious to us. There's nothing that mandates God being kind to us. If God operated solely on the basis of his justice and righteousness, we would all go straight to eternity in the lake of fire. But God in his love has devised a perfect plan so that he can provide salvation to those who will turn to him. This is seen in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires to save mankind. He takes no pleasure in the judgment or the punishment of those who have rebelled against him. What he desires is for uh, men to be saved. And so he has devised a very simple plan of salvation, a plan of salvation based upon him doing everything so that all we have to do is simply accept it, to trust in him, to rely upon him. And yet to do so means that we have to exercise humility. We have to recognize that there's nothing we can do to help him. There's nothing we can do to aid him. In fact, if we try to, it destroys the whole uh, salvation package. The only thing that we can do is to relax and trust in him and recognize that we can do absolutely nothing to, to save ourselves. And so we look at all of history, God's dealing with mankind on the basis of grace. And when we do that, we see that in human history, God postponed judgment in the Old Testament period from the time of the creation to the time that the Savior appears uh, at that very first Christmas when our Lord was born. Approximately 4,000 years went by, and God postponed judgment because he had to prepare the uh, human race for the coming of the Savior. Galatians 4.4 tells us that in the fullness of time, uh, God sent a Savior, that the Savior appeared. In other words, God was preparing 
uh, mankind through the revelation in the Old Testament, through the various types, etc., as well as working in and through history to bring about that perfect setting, that perfect situation uh, into which the Savior could be born. And so there were 4,000 years of delayed judgment, and now another 2,000 years has gone by, again, of delayed judgment so that God can save all who will. But eventually there will come a time when more and more people will reject the Lord, and there will reach a point of critical mass where it is time to bring judgment. God will delay it as long as he can, but when that time comes... It's as as if evil and sin within the experience of mankind comes to this point of of critical mass or blossoming where the result will be complete self-destruction by mankind and he would wipe himself off the face of the earth. This is what the Lord indicates in Matthew 24, that if these days were... Uh, were not shortened, that is, the period in the tribulation period was not shortened, then all would be destroyed, and mankind would destroy himself. And so uh, God will bring about this judgment in perfect timing, but delay it to the point that the most uh, can be saved. So we understand from what we've studied that God allows sin and evil in the experience of man to continue so that he can save all that will be saved. Now, during the tribulation, there is also a a growing hardness of heart from a segment of that tribulation population known as the earth dwellers that are hardened in their rejection of God. And no matter how much God extends his grace to them, either in kindness or in judgment, They reject it, they refuse to accept it, and it will come to a point where God, it will be necessary for God to bring judgment upon them, but there's always grace extended to them throughout that particular period in history. We see their response in a couple of different passages that we have looked at so far in Revelation, for example, in the sixth seal judgment, we're told that those who dwell on the earth, that is, the kings of the earth and the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man, in other words, they come from every segment of human society, they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, this is when you have this, this uh, asteroid shower on the earth that is destroying so many, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, they know that these judgments are coming from God. They're not natural catastrophes. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, that's the sixth seal judgment. In the sixth trumpet judgment, they exhibit the same hardness of heart and rejection of God, the same neg- locked-in negative volition. They've locked it in themselves. In Revelation 9, 20 and 21, we looked at this last time, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of the murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. This comes after the second cycle of judgments, including the uh, release of two demonic armies who bring incredible plagues 
on the earth such that another third of the human race dies, and yet they are continuing to shake their fist in the face of God. So we see in this first point that God extends his grace to man. Grace precedes judgment, and even through the tribulation period, there is still the extension of grace again and again and again to those whom God knows will never, ever trust in him, will never turn to him, no matter what he does, and yet he continues to extend grace to them. That is a tremendous picture of what it means to be gracious and kind to those who are our enemies. Now, the second principle that we see in this section has to do with the character of God, his integrity. Integrity of God focuses on four specific attributes of his character. And we see that the integrity of God is displayed toward all. Again, this is a focal point in the angelic conflict, for it is the character of God, God's integrity, that Satan is challenged. And God displays this in a magnificent way throughout the tribulation and throughout these judgments. And he displays it to all, to Jews, to Gentiles, to believers, and to unbelievers. Now, in the integrity of God, we focus on several key attributes of God's character. Specifically, we're going to focus on his righteousness, his justice, Uh, his love, and his veracity. These four seem to be highlighted again and again in Scripture. Of course, we know that they're not unrelated to God's sovereignty, the fact that he is eternal life or his omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence, or his immutability, but there is uh, an aspect to these four attributes that seem to always be connected in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 89, 14, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness, that is that, that fantastic Hebrew word chesed, meaning his faithful, loyal love. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Now, these are the foundation of his throne. So uh, one thing we should note here, what is going on? That's not me. No matter how I move, it doesn't affect, and I wasn't moving the first time it happened, so. Now I'm, you know, it's starting to fade out there a minute. Psalm 89, remember, is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. Now that's important because of where I'm going to go with this is that what we see in Revelation and in the end times events is that God continues to be faithful to his covenants to Israel and finally brings them to completion. He will finally bring them to completion. So in the meditation on the Davidic covenant, Psalm 89, there is the emphasis here on his righteousness and his justice and his loving kindness and truth, truth being that which he relates to what he reveals. So we look at these four elements as the core of God's integrity, the core of his character. And as we got into the... uh, seventh chapter, I said that as the question is asked there at the end of the sixth chapter, who can stand, the real focus here is is how in the world can God's character uh, be justified to bring this kind of suffering and misery upon those who have trusted in him, for even though the church is going to be taken away at the rapture of the church, 
and we won't be here. There will be many millions of people who trust in Christ uh, in the transition period before the uh, tribulation begins and during the tribulation itself. So I pointed out that God's character, that is his righteousness, justice, love, and some his integrity, is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time. God allows this to come to its fruition to demonstrate that uh, creatures cannot operate apart from him, for that will always bring about injustice and suffering uh, into the realm of the creature. And so God is going to allow it to come to its full fruition in order that he might then fully judge evil and 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 suffering. And what we learn from all of this are two things, that God is in control, despite the fact that we look around and we see all this suffering and warfare and famine and economic collapse and misery. God is still in control, and he has a purpose, even though we may not fully comprehend it. We trust in him because he knows all the facts, and we don't. Another couple of passages that emphasize his integrity, Psalm 33.5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 72.2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Jeremiah 9.24, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on, the, on earth, for in these I delight. And what we see when we come to Revelation 7 and the focus on the 144,000 who are saved and the focus on the innumerable martyrs that are in heaven is that God is still faithful to his word, specifically in relationship to Israel, to the covenant with Abraham, where he promised that they would have a particular piece of real estate that they would be blessed through the seed, the royal king would come through David, and that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. This is brought about by the end of the tribulation period, as well as the Davidic covenant, and where David was promised a descendant, God would give him an eternal house, eternal kingdom, and eternal throne. And so this is being worked out in these last seven years of the period related to Israel as described in Daniel chapter 9. The fact that these covenants are fulfilled reminds us that God is faithful, and just as he will fulfill the promises he made to Abraham, to David, to all of the Jews, he is also going to be faithful and true to the promises that he has made to us. Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36 states, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, that is, if these covenants don't come true, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The point that he is making is that he will faithfully fulfill these promises in his covenants. He recognized this in passages like Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, that one day Israel, because of their hostility toward God, would be driven among all the nations, but they would eventually return to the Lord. And when they did that, verse 3 states, God would then gather them again from all the nations. 
The point of this is that as a demonstration of God's integrity, his faithfulness, that he fulfills those promises that are so difficult to maintain when we think about how many campaigns there have been against the Jews and anti-Semitism to destroy them down through uh, thousands of years of history, attempts to wipe out uh, any presence of Israel in the land that God promised to them and to have them scattered among all the nations of the earth. And yet, at the end of the tribulation, God will have them all brought back in a regenerative state to the land and restore them to the land and give them that land with Jesus, the greater son of David, as their king. This tells us that those little crises and calamities that you face in life and that I face in life, no matter how major they may appear to us, no matter how life-threatening they may appear to us, that compared to what God is going to do to bring life back to what appears to be the dead nation Israel is nothing. That if God can do that in history, then there is nothing in your life or my life that is too great for the grace of God and that can somehow uh, cause him to break the promises that he has made to us. third principle that we've seen in these chapters is that God will eventually bring judgment on all the spheres where sin has brought corruption. Where sin has brought corruption, there must be judgment, not in terms of eternal judgment, but also but temporal judgment that these judgments will come upon the physical solar system, the physical material universe that God created, uh, both the heavens and the earth. There will be judgment on the cosmic system, that is, those systems of that man has devised to try to make life work apart from God, uh, judgments upon the fallen angels, the demons, as well as judgments in time against the earth dwellers, the, the unbelievers who have resisted God. And this is seen, we saw that spent about a lot of time in looking at passages such as Romans 1, 18 and following. I took the time to go through and develop the fact that there, were, there are two ways in which God's judgment operates in history. One is based on built-in natural cause effect, sort of like if you take your hand and put it on a hot stove, you immediately burn yourself. If we uh, commit certain sins, for example, if you get yourself extended in debt, uh, sooner or later that house of cards is going to come down. That is a natural built-in cause and effect. But sometimes we are involved in sin and rebellion against God, nations or individuals, and when God brings judgment, he enhances the natural or normal consequences of that rebellion. And that then he adds a, another level, either within the natural sphere or, as, we'll see, as we see in the tribulation, within a supernatural sphere. For example, there was judgment within the normal cause and effect before the flood, but the worldwide flood of Noah was a supernatural judgment upon that civilization at that time. The ten plagues that God brought against Egypt during the Exodus event were supernatural in origin, and they reveal God's special judgment against Egypt at that time for not releasing Israel. We also see elements of that supernatural judgment that God brought against 
the Canaanites when Israel invaded and took the land under Joshua. We also see examples of that direct intervention from God in the events around 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was uh, defeated by the Assyrians in 586 B.C. when uh, the Nebuchadnezzar defeated the southern kingdom and in A.D. 70 when the Romans defeated the kingdom because God enabled them and empowered them to uh, defeat those uh, defeat Israel at those particular times. But we also see other elements. For example, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God, that term as we've seen, wrath of God indicates his judgment in time. The wrath of the God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. All human beings have a clear evidence that God exists. They don't need any more evidence to convince them that the word of God is true and that God exists and that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. They know that, but they are in the process of suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And when a culture does that, there are a series of judgments that are uh, stated in Romans 1, and God is behind that. He gives them over to these things. Often people today think that the per- sexual perversion, homosexuality, etc., that uh, we have in Western civilization uh, needs to be judged by God. No, it is a judgment by God. God has given us over to these perversions as a culture because at the very core of our culture we have rejected God. So God gives them over. He, as it were, removes certain restraints. You see the same phrase used again in verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. And then again in, um, down in verse, verses 30 to 32 continues to expand on all of this. Uh, verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So all of this is just part of the outworking of God's judgment in time. And we see this develop in the uh, judgments that are there in the, uh, in the tribulation period, in the seal judgments, and in the trumpet judgments. Now, in the last, the sixth seal judgment focuses on various physical disturbances, an earthquake, the sun becomes darkened like sackcloth, the moon like blood, the sky is split like a scroll. And all of these geophysical and astrophysical disasters result in uh, not that, that these earth dwellers turn to God, but that they continue to resist him despite all that they see at this particular time. And it hardens this segment of of, uh, rebellious mankind. Then we went on into the trumpet judgments, and we see the trumpet judgments as they're described, and these judgments are intensified. The first series of judgments and the seal judgments, the first four, are all that first category sort of natural consequences. The fifth judgment was an increase in martyrdom among believers, 
And then the sixth judgment was a, an enhanced supernatural judgment. From that point on, all of these judgments are enhanced supernatural judgments. So that when we look at the trumpet judgments, we see fiery hail is the first trumpet. This, a burning mountain falls into the oceans and destroys a third of the ocean life and uh, destroys a third of the salt sea. Uh, the third trumpet judgments, uh, another uh, asteroid falls into the water and destroys the uh, potability of a third of the fresh water, kills the life in a third of the fresh water uh, systems. And then the fourth, uh, the fourth trumpet, the sun and the moon, the stars are also darkened. And then we have an even worse development starting with the fifth trumpet judgment. This is the first of three woe judgments. The fifth, sixth, and seventh are the three woe judgments. The fifth and sixth involve a demonic invasion. So we wonder how could things get any worse? Well, things will get a, a whole lot worse as we go through this period of time in the trumpet judgments. But throughout this time, not only is there evidence of God's grace, but evidence of his judgment. He has to judge all of these spheres. And as we see, he judges mankind. Uh, he judges the commanders, the, the leaders, the kings, and he judges creation. And he judges creation because creation itself has been affected by, uh, by sin. Romans 8, 20 to 21 says that for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the third thing we realize is that God must bring judgment upon all these spheres, whether they are the spheres of uh, the material, physical world, the spheres of mankind, and even the angelic, demonic sphere. And so we see the release of these demonic armies that come up. For example, in the fifth seal, you have the release of this scorpion locust army that comes out of the uh, abyss. And then we have the release of the 200 million in the, from the Euphrates that have been held there, imprisoned for that particular moment in time. So it, God is bringing together at the end of time in the tribulation all of these different groups in order to bring about judgment. But above all, we see as the fourth point that God's judgment is delayed so that his grace will be manifested, but eventually the judgment is executed in time. We saw that back when we looked at that fifth uh, seal judgment. The fifth seal judgment, we saw that there was an untold number of martyrs in heaven under the golden altar praying to God how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God's answer is, in verse 11, there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. In other words, God is saying, I delayed judgment does not mean there's no judgment. It is delayed for the purpose of giving those that will be saved the opportunity to be saved. And so what we see throughout these judgments 
is not just the harshness of judgment against sin that sin deserves, but what we see is the continued extension of God's grace to those who have never trusted in him. And despite the hardness of heart, no matter how many times they reject, we see God continuing to exercise the initiative of grace so that all that will will be saved. That These are the key points in looking at these judgments. They all focus upon God, his character, the defense of his integrity, the promotion of grace, and the extension of the offer of salvation to as many who will, that all who will may come. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have this these pictures of your characters exemplified in these judgments, that it's not just about judgment, but it's about justice and grace, that these two concepts cannot be divorced from one another, that in your justice there will be judgment, sin will be dealt with, those who have dealt in injustice will be judged, but there is still the continued extension of your grace, that those who do not deserve it, including all who are here, have been given the free offer of salvation, that by simply trusting in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. Because we understand that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for all those sins that we commit. So there is forgiveness at the cross. There at the cross, our certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. It was paid in full so that all that is left for us to do is to trust in him, to accept his death on our behalf, to believe that he died, that we might have eternal life. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain, that they will, understand, will have understood this morning that Jesus died for their sins and that if they believe in him at that instant, they are forgiven of all sin, they, are, uh, they receive eternal life, that can never be lost. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.